Hi, everyone. Welcome to Fireside Chats on the Young Mind. My name is Alex Dutton. I'm the program director of Old Firehouse School in Lafayette. And I have Liz Nolasco, who's the program director of our San Rafael campus here with me today. Today, we are going to talk about inclusion and what that might mean for your preschooler. I want to make a note here on identity first language. You might be used to hearing a phrase like child with autism. While this is still a topic of discussion in the disability rights community, many people now prefer identity first language over person first language. So in this instance, autistic child. This is because for many people, the person and the disability are inseparable and the disability plays a role in who the person is. We're using primarily identity first language here. However, we want to note that it's important to find out how specific individuals would like to identify when you interact with them. Thank you, Liz. Um, We are all learning and we are all going to keep on doing better. That is the goal. We're going to talk about inclusion. And I wanted to share an experience I had a few weeks ago where I went to a movie with my family and we watched the previews, the previews all went through. And then the movie started and the movie started with subtitles, you know, birds chirping, music playing. And at first I thought, oh, well, that's interesting. I hope they go away because you know, I don't see movies in a movie theater often, and it was a tiny bit distracting. And after a couple of minutes, they didn't go away. And I kind of mentioned to my daughter, who's 11, she's sitting next to me. I said, I wonder why the subtitles are on. That's kind of weird. And she's like, yeah, I don't know. And movie kept going. And about five minutes into it, I I kind of said, well, maybe I'm going to ask them to turn them off. And she, in all of her wonderful knowledge, well, why? There might be someone here who is deaf and needs the subtitles. And I thought, oh, yeah, of course. Like, why <laughs> Why did I make this a big deal? I watch TV shows with subtitles at home all the time. For some reason, at the movie theater, it was a different experience. But it was like a lesson in myself of just like, I wanted my experience to be this way. A very slight change in my experience made me question, like, can I change this? Can I make it the way I want it? And it was really wonderful to see my daughter kind of point me in the right direction that this is an inclusive thing. It's not a big deal. We can still enjoy the movie. And it just made me think because as a preschool teacher and director, we work with children with a variety of support needs. And we talk regularly with staff and learn and professional development about inclusion. And inclusion might, you know, mean talk, you know, working with an autistic child or a child with sensory processing differences or sometimes a physical disability. And our hope is always that we are supporting children to the best of our abilities and our knowledge in the schools that we have and to make sure that all children learn how to engage with all people. So today, to help us go deeper into this, we're going to talk about inclusion with author and educator Mike Huber. He wrote the book, he's written a lot of books, but the most recent book he has written is Inclusion Includes Us, Building Bridges and Removing Barriers to Include All Children and Adults in Early Childhood Classrooms. And he's also the co-host of a podcast called Teaching with the Body and Mind, and he's a frequent guest on another podcast called That Early Childhood Nerd. He actually is joining us from Minnesota, where he is a curriculum specialist for early childhood education at David Center in Minnetonka. And you're the chair of the board for Child Care Aware in Minnesota. So looks like my early childhood and specifically inclusion, that's your life. That's what you do. It, it is my life. Although I, I just realized I left the board. I mean, my nine-year tenure was up this month, so I am not oh, okay. on the board anymore. 
So, yeah. so I, have, I have plenty of free time now. <laughs> <laughs> well, thank you for joining us today. You're welcome. Yeah, it's great to be here. So inclusion is a relatively new concept in education. I mean, it's something that we've been talking about, I feel like at Old Firehouse School for many, many years, but it's still something we're still kind of understanding and learning about. So can you explain to us why it's important for us to learn about it? Sure. And I want to go back to your story about the movie theater, because I think all of us view the world through our own lens, what things meet our needs. And if the people who usually put the movie, you know, show the movies or the people who built the movie theater or things like that are similar to you, you probably think, of course, everyone needs it this way. And then suddenly there's, in your case, the deaf person in the audience who needs captions and suddenly, oh, wait, this way doesn't work for everyone. But all of us kind of think that way. It's just part of human nature, right? That you first think with your own lens. And what we used to do in education was then just not have kids who didn't fit that lens be in the same room. And then, you know, in the 70s, mostly around disability rights uh, activism, they used the word inclusion then. But unfortunately, what it mostly meant was we put them all in the same room, but don't do mm -hmm. anything differently. And so now there's been much more of a emphasis on we need other lenses, right? We need other ideas of what we need. And I'll use my personal story. Um, I am the father of a, an 18-year-old who's autistic, and they have a lot of sensory issues. When I walk into a restaurant, I always think, what's the background noise? Like, would I ever bring my child here? Hmm. And I always do that, just like if someone is the parent of somebody with ability issues, or you know, if they're a wheelchair user or whatever, you notice any place that the ramp is too steep or there are no, there is no ramp or, you know, whatever. So it's just, I always have that lens now just because of my own situation. And it's not something that affects me directly, but it, parenthood is like that next step where you'd start to notice, wait a minute. And so inclusion really is, it keeps changing, but it's that idea that, well, how do we actually have children? I like to use the word engage. How can children be engaged in a classroom? and what prevents them from being engaged, not just in the room, but actually using materials, engaged with peers, engaged with the adults. And that's, I think, where we're at with the definition of inclusion now. So can you give an example of what sure. that might look like in a preschool classroom? Yeah, so um, one thing that all children are developing in the preschool years is basically, uh, Working memory is often the, the term used nowadays, but that idea of being able to picture what's happening, right? So I'm finishing snack, and the next thing we do is uh, whatever, we go outside. And for an adult, they just picture it in their mind, and young children are still developing that ability to picture it in their head. So the thing that makes that more accessible is if you have a schedule in pictures that the children can understand, they can see, oh, I'm eating snack right now. I can't remember what's next. I look over there and see, oh, right, I go outside next, right? Um, most children don't remember. A few will. And then there's a bunch of kids who just follow what their friends are doing. So, oh, he's putting on his coat, so I'll go put on my coat. But they would have known otherwise. And then some need, oh, and then, the, of course, the teacher would also say, so after you're done with snack, put on your coat because we're going outside. So there's a verbal 
reminder from the adult, there's the pictures and then there's children who just follow their friends. And some can already remember. A child with autism or ADHD would have a harder time or that would develop even later. So those picture schedules, in effect, a lot of older kids, elementary school kids, even middle school or high school kids might need those same visual reminders. Once they can read, it can be a written thing, but often they'll still have to refer to a schedule. And nowadays, that's usually a phone with an app for young adults or teens. But for young children, when they can't read, it's pictures. So that, that's an example of something that would be a way of including kids. And for whatever reason, they can't remember, you know. Sometimes families who see these accommodations and modifications are concerned that having their child in an inclusive classroom decreases the amount of attention paid to their typically developing child. So I'm hoping right. you can talk a little bit about how that works in your programs, how the educators navigate being sure that everyone's needs are met sure. when those needs might be outside of what they typically expect. Yeah, yeah. And I think it's important for that question to uh, differentiate between accommodations and accessibility, because the first goal is always accessibility. So I gave the example of the picture schedule. That's going to be good for kids who just get focused on other things. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Right, right. It's not just for the child, the autistic child who can't picture those things in their head and won't for several years or or will always have some difficulty or uh, whatever. So there's those examples. Same thing with having enough space between shelves so a wheelchair can navigate. That actually also means that if a child's carrying things, they can get through. Or the doors, you know, nowadays um, doors don't have those knobs. They have, I don't know what you call it, the little handle that sticks out. So you can actually open with your elbow. So it could just be, oh, now you don't have to use your hands. So during a pandemic, you can open a door without using your hands. It could be because your hands can't hold on to a knob. And it could be because um, you're carrying stuff and you can open. So with that in mind, in a classroom, accessibility actually helps a lot of children. And it could be for reasons, sometimes we don't even think ahead of time of what that might be, but it might be this child really likes playing with two other kids and these wide walkways allow for them to always move together and not have to be separated by inches as, as their friends or whatever. So that could be one way. And it also helps the child who's using the wheelchair or things like that. So that is the accessibility part. Accommodations, that's when it's something individual. So actually all three of us are wearing glasses. Gla- eyeglasses are an example of accommodations. I can't wear Liz's glasses or Alexandra's glasses because uh, it wouldn't work for me. So it's, these are only for me. A wheelchair is the same way. So there are going to be things that are more about accommodating a child. And so for some children, that might be a smaller, like something they can carry of what are the steps to get ready to go outside because they need it broken down into smaller steps. Here in Minnesota, going outside is a big deal. Oh, I have to take off my shoes. I have to put on my snow pants before my boots. You know, all these things. So they you know really follow the, the list. And without having a little um, handheld thing where the kids will literally flip the page. What's next? What's next? And usually it's more of the flipbook style where it's all of the steps are there. But as you finish, you flip that one. So it works like a checklist, except that the problem with the checklist is you still see everything, even if you have a check mark. Uh-oh, so it's okay. hard to focus. Whereas right. when you flip it, now you see the one that's coming up. And I've discovered as an adult that I still need that 
and I now use an app for my grocery list where things disappear as I check them off instead of staying there. I didn't realize that can be an accommodation because not every kid needs that. It can also be around behaviors, right? That children, as they're developing social emotional skills, there's the same sort of variety that happens, a range, I guess is a better word, that happen for every type of development. Some kids are going to be able to physically cut with scissors at a younger age than another kid, or they're going to be taller so they can reach the top shelf and other kids can't yet, or their tongue muscles develop so they can pronounce spaghetti, whereas the rest of the class still says paschetti, things like that. It also means that social skills, that somebody does something you don't like, a toddler is going to hit, an infant's going to cry, a toddler's going to hit, preschooler, it depends, right, of where they're at. At first, they'll be hitting and eventually they learn to use their words and say, hey, stop that, or I don't like that, or I'm mad, or whatever. But there's a really wide range of when those skills are developed. And when they're out of the typical range, we refer children will often get mental health support as well. And one thing I want to dispel right away is that children's mental health, the flip side of that, or the other name for that is healthy social emotional development right? So you need a specialist when you're not able to do it just in your typical environment. So our center also provides children's mental health. When parents first hear that word, mental health, there's shame around it. Our society just doesn't know how to accept that. But it's like, well, if your child had an, whatever, their one arm wasn't developing correctly, so they couldn't use their hand, no one would think how shameful. There was a time in our in Western culture that that was shameful, but we've accepted physical disabilities. I know there's plenty of people who would argue that we still don't, and we still don't to the degree we should. But I feel like with children's mental health, parents are worried when they hear that, both either their own child or if somebody else in the classroom is receiving services, does that put my kid at danger and things? And so I think it's important to know that all children develop in a range. And for some kids, and unfortunately, and I guess we all do it, we all harm others in some way. When children are younger, it's often physical, but sometimes that harm is teasing or saying things that are mean or just excluding someone without noticing, right? When kids are out on the playground and they play chase and one child's in a wheelchair and they don't stop to think, how do we include this child? They've suddenly left that kid out. And parents of disabled children often, or that's the main thing that they worry about in the education system is children getting socially excluded. And the kids don't often mean it, but they need an adult to help them. Hey, hold on. Let's think about how could we include Liz if she's in a wheelchair? Or, and if it's around children hitting, because I know that's the one parents listening to this are going to go to. But what about when my kid gets hit? Children are still developing those abilities. I think it's really important for all children to learn that, oh, yeah, he's still learning that. She's still learning that. And hearing that and knowing that's just something, all of us are learning something, and that's the thing that child's learning is important. And while nobody likes having a child getting hit is never a good thing, it, it does happen at this age with for a lot of different things. And the truth is, is kids also fall down because <laughs> they're still physically uncoordinated and stuff. So, you know, children are going to get bumps and bruises as part of development. It's actually part of healthy development and learning to be around a child who's still learning to express their emotions without hitting. And that's a great thing when children start to accept it. I see in classrooms, kids will have that like, oh, he's still learning that. But they also, will, before something starts to happen, they start stepping in. If Liz and I were both four-year-olds and Liz often was hitting kids, I as the other four-year-old might see someone take her toy. It's like, oh, Liz was using that 
okay, Liz, you don't have to hit him, you know, and the children will take on that role. And, and the idea that a four-year-old starts to take on that role, obviously the, it doesn't mean the teachers aren't doing that. I just mean children also learn to accept where kids are at. They definitely do. I have two kids, one who's 11, one who's eight. And when it became clear in my eight-year-old's class that there was a child who had some needs, the language started to change around that child because it was really hard at first being in a classroom with a child that had a lot of self-regulation issues, a lot of impulse control issues. And however they explained it and however we tried to also mirror that at home of just, you know, like, well, we know everybody's still learning. We know everybody's going to still have some work to do. And that's what this person's work is right now. They're working on being able to stop their bodies from moving in this way. That did eventually sink in for my child. What happens if you don't do that is kids will start using the word bad. Oh, well, there's this bad kid in my class. Yes. He's always hitting. So it is up to adults mm -hmm. to reframe that as, oh, it sounds like they're still learning to do that. And I think parents can do that too. If you, we lived across the street from a playground. So they were often on a playground with other kids that I didn't know. But if a child was doing that, oh, it sounds like they're still learning how to do that. Mm -hmm. And I did not want to teach my child to just say, oh yeah, well, they're, that child's bad. Right. Regardless of whether I knew what the circumstances were, I think all of us have to frame that. And again, I'll go back. I think it's a really good way to think of had the child not been able to use the slide because they're in a wheelchair. I was like, well, they're bad. They can't use the slide. Right. But the fact that they can't take turns on the slide. Yeah, they're not able to socially do that. It's also just a development thing. And maybe it's the child experience trauma. Maybe it's a neurodivergence, whatever, whatever the reason I want to teach my child to think of these things as just things they're learning, you know, learning still. It doesn't mean you have to go back to the playground with that kid's there when it's a playground or something like that, but you don't have to go to that phrase, oh, he's bad. Right. Sounds like one of the really far-reaching benefits of creating inclusive environments too, being able to take, you know, develop more empathy for people whose skills are different than your own and being able yes. to see the good and see that everyone's a work in progress, everyone's learning something and especially maybe when you don't know that there's a diagnosis or something else going on, but just giving them that benefit of the doubt, that empathy and extending your ability to take that person's perspective seems like such a gift to children who grow up with it. Yeah, for sure. I, I totally agree. Liz, you started talking about it, but the benefits of inclusion, like what are the benefits of inclusion for everybody, for every child? Yeah. I mean, it's kind of what Liz just said in a way, right? That it's, they start to learn how to get along with other people, and you never know who you're going to be in contact with as you go through life. I don't want to say this in the way that the whole job of early childhood education is to create a workforce. And yet, I know when I my coworkers, if they don't know how to get along with someone different than them, it makes everything a lot harder. The other thing that studies show is that children become really good at attuning to differences. And figuring out how to adapt their own behavior to meet that person. Elizabeth Jones, who's passed away in 2022, but she was a writer in early childhood and talked about children being master players. And master players were the kids, they weren't being bossy or whatever word you want to use. They knew what each child would want to do and say, oh, you can be the mom. You're going to be the dad. You'll be the ballet teacher. You'll be the dog. And they give roles to everyone, but they give the role to the kid that that child already wants. And in adulthood, we call that leadership, right? A, a good leader is someone who 
sees what someone can do before they realize it. Say, hey, do you want to come help me write this magazine article? Or Children start to learn that at a very young age. And it's partly around learning to notice differences in kids and then to start to navigate your own behavior to adapt for that person. And children in inclusive environments learn that regardless of their own ability or whatever. So the typically developing children develop that too. So I think that's the biggest thing. So I guess I'd call that leadership skills and social skills in general. And then I'd say also just that it can be exciting. Like there's all these things you do that you don't expect to do, like riding an elevator because your friend uses a wheelchair or whatever. I mean, that's more from the five-year-old perspective of like, wow, that's the coolest thing in the world. I like what you said too about we're always going to work and live and be around other people who are different than us. And whether it has to do with being differently abled or, or, or just, you know, neurologically divergent or different. I think that's just so true. Like just looking around at the world, you know, the communities that we have now, there's so many different types of people. And the, the sooner that all of us can learn to accept differences and instead of trying to make every everything the same or everyone do everything the exact same way, then the better off we all are. And, and I love that I already see, again, the language that we've been using in the classroom. I see it much more out in families too, of just people trying to help children like have the empathy and have right. the, the understanding that everyone's different. Oh, you know, that, that child's yeah. just, they're still learning that. And it's hard though, of course, you know, like I, like you yeah. mentioned, if there's a child who, who has a behavioral thing, that's a little bit harder to be around. But I think again, moving towards that language, instead of just labeling them as bad or whatever. Yeah. And I think I wasn't planning to say this part, but I think it's important to say that there's a lot of things we get because our society has been more inclusive. Uh, some people, you know, there's jokes around the way it like workplaces have like a basketball court or they have like all these things going on and it's like and the thing is is that if everyone was sitting at a cubicle you would not have any of the neurodivergent <laughs> workforce there because they couldn't handle it and guess who created computers guess who creates most of the apps guess who keeps your apps working they're mostly neurodivergent people and we need people to be able to go to contribute you know we used to as a society used to kind of just those people would be cast out in a way just because of the buildings we had and the workplaces we had. And, and then also, we didn't even talk about other cultural reasons that people might be different. But the same is true for all that. In workplace, that means allowing for different hairstyles is still being business-like, even though it's not what you've seen in a corporate environment before or in a classroom. Yeah, there are going to be people who eat different foods or who learn differently or have different values around certain things. So things are tied. They're not like mutually exclusive. I know we're mostly talking about disabilities right now, but I just want to underscore the point you just made, because I think there's been a lot more conversation recently as there should be about diversity and cultural inclusion. And I think that as we extend this to inclusion of people of, of all abilities and disabilities, it just becomes even more resonant, I think, for all of us. Right. Right. And different issues come up, of course, historically, like it's easier for a teacher to notice like, well, of course, I'm different than this child in a wheelchair. They might think I'm not different than this child, even though they grew up differently, you know, culturally, especially if their skin color is the same and things. But it's like, but if they have a different idea of independence versus uh, interdependence or a different idea about how you show respect in a classroom, I 
you know, that idea if you if you as the teacher calls a child over, do they or calls to a child, do they come over to you and talk to you? Do they say from across the room what? You know, and all of those have cultural implications. And if the teacher has a different cultural upbringing than the child, they could read that child's behavior as being whatever antisocial or problematic or challenging when all it is is a different way of doing things. And the more you have that understanding. So some it's different in the sense that I, I think in some ways cultural things can be harder to notice. Although neurodivergence, usually kids aren't diagnosed till after preschool. So that becomes one where, you know, my child would get into trouble for taking so long to get ready in first grade, getting out their colored pencils or getting out this and that. And guess what they had on their IEP when they finally got diagnosed? They need more time to do things that involve motor skills, but they were getting into trouble for it. And, you know, in a way it's like, why are kids getting into trouble when it takes them longer? You know, it was, they were dawdling, I think was the word the teacher would use at the time. So. Well, that, that kind of brings me to our last question where I think in our preschools, we have, we have a really small, small, cozy, supportive environment. And we have sometimes some children are starting their road on getting outside supports here, whether, you know, like, whether, like you said, their mental health supports, like an, like an OT or seeing, you know, a therapist or what have you. But here it feels like there's so many more things that the parents can work with the teachers on mm-hmm. and moving from from a program like ours into kindergarten where it's going to be much bigger and just is my child going to be okay or moving from just a program where you know we we have lots of really great programs that are to support children who are who need some extra time extra skills that they're working on and then move them into a more typically developing preschool what are some things that we can say to families to get them ready for what might happen and what that that shift will be like right right um and this is one that we often talk about as well because yeah all the children are supported in more one-on-one way, you know, that can't happen in a in an elementary school. And I think the first thing I would say is that sometimes I hear people say, well, you should just make preschool look more like kindergarten. So they learn to do it. And but all the executive function skills that children are developing don't develop as well when you have that more academic idea. And one thing I've been thinking about even more is that idea that children are developing their identity as a learner how they view themselves. And so if they're really well supported in their preschool environment, they start to look at, oh, school is a fun place and I get to do these things. And then kindergarten, what parents can help children do is like, oh, sounds like you're having a hard time because of X. And depending on the teacher and things, either the child can just tell the teacher, it's really hard for me when I'm sitting in back, can I move my seat? Or learning to advocate for yourself and then also the parents doing that too. And it's going to depend on your child, the teacher or the school, which person does it. It's a good skill for kids to learn over time. You don't want to just put it all on your kid, but sometimes a, a child who learns to at least say that part can really help. And then that way they're viewing themselves. They're still a learner, but it might be harder in that environment because of they don't have as much opportunity to it's going to take me longer to do this, but the whole class has to get over to this other side of the building for whatever. Um, kindergarten's usually a little more of a bridge to that, but first grade for sure can really amp up for kids who need more time, more space. But I think advocating for it, and I think 
for all children, I don't mean to say that elementary school is a famine, but what I've heard people say is, you know, before a famine, you don't starve yourself to get ready for it, right? You don't like prepare for it by doing the same thing. You do the opposite of anything. You eat food, you eat healthy food, you know, like you make your body as strong as possible. Then you go to that next environment. So I said, I'm not making that, that the analogy isn't perfect because elementary school is not famine, but you never prepare for something by imitating what's happening. Instead, you prepare yourself. So learning your executive function skills, being able to get along with others, all of those things that leads you into success in future education, even if you might need to advocate for yourself a little bit. Mike, are there places that parents are interested in hearing more from you can find you? The really simple way, if you just want little bits at a time, is just on Facebook. I do something called Inclusion Includes Us, and I just try to have one quote or maybe one you know short video linked or a podcast. This one will be on there when it comes out. And so that's just a daily, you know, just a little something. If you want more, um, you can look me up on Amazon or Goodreads and see what books I have. Those are the main ways. I have a website, teachingwithabodyandmind.com, if you're interested in just kind of reading some other things. There's some older essays of mine before I really started working in an inclusion preschool setting. But so far, most things have stood the test of time. Thank you so much for your time, Mike. And I know sure. it gets complicated. I really appreciate your sharing so much knowledge and experience that you have. Yeah, you're welcome. Thanks for having me. Thanks everyone for listening to Fireside Chats on the Young Mind brought to you by Old Firehouse School. Subscribe to our podcast anywhere you get your podcasts and you can also follow Old Firehouse School on Instagram, Facebook. We have a TikTok now, right? But I don't know how often that's updated, but we will update it more and Twitter. So hopefully this was helpful for you. And thanks Liz for being here to co-host this with me. Thank you. It was fun. All right. Bye everyone. Bye.